This is In Perspective with Bob Branco and Peter Auchul. Hi, everybody. Welcome once again to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco for episode 258. We have, of course, with us Peter Auchul of Columbia, Missouri, with us as our co-host. Peter, how are you? We're doing fine, Bob. It's been 85 and humid all week, and now it's supposed to get down to 60 for the weekend. So we're so happy. I, I guess we're doing a swap. We're expecting 90 plus in parts of New England tomorrow. As a matter of fact, I heard today that the Red Sox might be playing in Boston where the temperature is going to be 96. So uh, we're flip-flopping, Peter. We've been I, chilly, and now we're going to warm up big time. Well, I, I feel your pain. I don't. I don't like hot weather. Anyway, uh, uh, it's great to be here. All right. So let me thank those people that are responsible for making our podcasts available to the general public. Raymond Gay, our producer. Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place, Chatline, our media outlets, and Jacqueline Sylvia, my website designer. She's with a company called JS Web Solutions. We have Diane filling in for Raymond today as our Zoom host. Hi, Diane. Hello. Anyway, when I was at Perkins School for the Blind, I heard a lot about tandem bicycling. I never did it back then, but I know what the concept is. People might say, well, everybody's blind at Perkins. How can they possibly do tandem bicycling? Well, some students, as many people know, have more vision than others. And so it was quite possible for the students with more sight to tandem with the students who had less sight. But I did not have personal experience with tandem bicycling until about the turn of this century. I was down the Cape on a bike path with a group, and I actually did some tandem biking with a sighted person. And the experience was very rewarding. I thought it was great how that worked out. So today, we brought on a tandem bicycling expert with us, Ron Berzesi. Ron? First of all, welcome to In Perspective. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you, Bob and Peter and uh, everybody. Thank you. So when did you get involved with tandem bike biking and what was your first experience like? Well, actually, I would say probably in the early 90s, somebody gave me an old Schwinn uh, tandem. Um, they took it apart and they painted the frame and then they gave it to me to put back together again. And so that was my first experience. And I would say it, it wasn't a very positive experience just because the bike itself wasn't very um, uh, performance oriented, I guess. It was more of a recreation, like a cruiser, more of a comfortable stroll around the neighborhood tandem. And I was in my um, early 20s, getting to be mid 20s. And I um, I wanted to go faster or, um, you know, have more of a 10 speed type bike instead of a, a cruiser. And so I, I thought if this is how tandems are, um, I would rather, it, it, I guess to me, it, it turned me off because I, at the time I didn't really want to be blind. I, I was in denial still. I had some eyesight. And so, uh, so that was my first uh, experience with the tandem was 1992 uh, an old 1960s or 70s Schwinn. For the benefit of our listeners, let me just explain what a tandem bike looks like. It has two seats, sure. one in front of the other. So one person sits in the front seat and the other person sits in the rear seat. 
Now, obviously, the person in the front seat has vision because they have to direct the bike and they do a lot of the pedaling. Now, Ron, in your experience, do you assist with the pedaling or do you let the sighted partner do it first? Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so the tandem is 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 only as uh, if, as effective as as both engines that are on there. Um, so so whether the front person is stronger or the back person is is stronger, um, it's it, it could be it can go in either direction, I guess. So, uh, but yeah, you're sitting uh, behind somebody else on the same bike, and uh, and yeah, so so either one of you could do more more than half the work if you wanted to. So, Ron, I, I'm curious about. Your, uh, your, so one of your comments, you talked about how you were sort of angry about being blind. So talk about that a little bit. Presumably you were raised, you were raised uh, with some vision. And so talk about what you were doing as a sighted person and how you sort of made that adjustment or you didn't or whatever as a blind person. Great question. I, it's a big part of my story, actually. Um, so I grew up in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, I was the youngest of six kids and I ended up with RP. And um, so I still had a lot of functional vision. I went to normal public school and I had a vision teacher. Uh, by the time I made it to middle school, um, I, I, I just went, I just faked it basically. If I could still read print with my nose near the page, I would read that way. But I, I had enough vision that I didn't use a cane. And yet I wasn't like all the other kids, if you will. I, I by the time I got to high school, I was in adaptive PE. And by the time I got to college, I started uh, having people read long chapters into a tape recorder for me so that I can actually study it and get through the material quick enough. So I wasn't really seeing myself as a blind person because I thought basically you had to be totally blind to be a blind person. Um, so until about the age of 25, I really struggled, um, being on the fence. Um, every blind person that I had ever met wasn't very impressive to me. Um, and I, I didn't want to be like that. I was, why um, weren't they impressive, Ron? Great question. Um, I think a lot of them had other disabilities. Um, they would, uh, rock when they would talk to you, um, they were into a lot of things that maybe I wasn't interested in. Um, uh, one guy was, um, well, so I, I think there were just other disabilities out there that I was seeing. And I thought it was all because of blindness that they had uh, a small scope of life smaller than I wanted, I guess. And so I was trying to hold on to the site that I had. Um, I was into bodybuilding. I was into going to the beach. I, I hung out with guys uh, who would soup up their cars and we'd go out and uh, look for girls and, and talk about cars and girls and music. And so I felt like I was growing up sort of normal. But when I would meet some other blind people at the blind school, the, the local rehab center, I guess, if you will, I felt like... Um, like they didn't have, they weren't, they weren't doing much with their lives to, to sum it up, I think. And, and that scared me because I was, um, you know, working my way through college and uh, didn't know what my future was going to be like either. 
but I, I, I in a, a little voice told me that I didn't want to be blind. <laughs> so I was trying to hold on to my life as much as I could. That strikes me as absolutely normal. You know, I mean, you know, you, you, you're, you, you know, nobody wants to lose their eyesight unless they have to. And then you're seeing, you're seeing people, um, you know, with, with a different experience that you had, it, it strikes me as a perfectly normal thing for use, but let's go back to your, so you, you always had sort of a jock mentality. It sounds like you're a bodybuilder. You were doing other things. Talk about that side of your life a little more. Yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up in Pittsburgh uh, until I was age 13. And uh, when I was there, we had the Pittsburgh Steelers winning their fourth Super Bowl and the Pirates winning their second world championship uh, World Series in 1979. And so in 81, I moved to Florida with my family. Um, and I wasn't I didn't have enough eyesight to really track a baseball or a football. So I, I found myself not really interested in those ball sports. I call them ball sports. Um, but I grew up with the Dukes of Hazard and Smokey and the Bandit and Chips. I don't know if you remember Chips with Punch and John. Um, and so I think a lot of that was surrounding the wheel, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, BJ and the Bear, trucks, cars, um, auto racing. And... Um, but yeah, so oh, so in when I was in adapted PE in ninth grade, I was bored because we were just reading about sports. And so when I got into tenth grade, I was able to start lifting weights. And you didn't need a whole lot of eyesight to bench press or do some squats. And and so I got pretty buff in maybe one semester of weightlifting. I. Um, it was just something that I was able to gravitate toward without really getting hurt. Uh, I was asked to be on five uh, sports teams, including football and soccer in high school, but I just didn't have the self-confidence and, and rightfully so I, I didn't have the same field of vision that everybody else had. And I, I probably would have gotten hurt a lot more, <laughs> but weightlifting was something within my grasp. And, uh, and I guess I had the genetics for it. And so, so yeah, that was, uh, I don't know if I answered your question. Um, yeah, so I guess I was, I was more into just being healthier, being active. I enjoyed long walks. Um, and, and, and I, I grew up around a bicycle as well. I think like many of us who had some vision, uh, the bicycle was like the closest thing we were ever going to get to getting the keys for a car and experiencing some independence. Ron, I don't, uh, I don't want to speak for other blind people, although I'm confident enough where I think I'm speaking for many of them. Uh -huh. But another sport that I feel that the blind are quite capable of doing, I mean, you were talking about weightlifting and bench press. I did my share of that at Perkins School and uh -huh. beyond that. But bowling is a sport that blind people do. And I was wondering if you ever decided to take that up to replace football and all the other sports that you felt you were uncomfortable with. And while we're at it, about wrestling. That's another yeah. one. Yeah. In second grade, I went to a wrestling practice and I had I been a pro had I had I learned about advocacy back then, I, I probably would have spoken up for myself because I couldn't really see what was going on as far as when they were teaching wrestling. And so I never went back to another wrestling practice. Plus, I took a wrong turn and I ended up in the women's locker room. <laughs> And, uh, and you should have heard the girls screaming when they found out a little boy, I was in second grade was in the women's locker room. Um, 
so yeah, so I so I missed out on wrestling and and bowling. I've I've done a a, a number of times as a social event, and and I, I enjoy bowling. Um, but I think um, what I really like is is getting out where I can just really open up my heart and my lungs and uh, go for that aerobic um, uh, experience. I guess, for lack of a better term, Dope, dopamine high, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, um, you know, my, I use a cane that comes up to my nose and, and I can, when I was working and taking buses, I would, you know, you hear your bus pulling up and you're, you're going for it, right? Like yep. you're, you know, you trust that nothing's going to be in front of you. You're using your cane and you're just really trying to make that bus. But, um, but you can't really just open up and go into a flat out run when you're blind, but on a tandem, if you wanted to, you could, start accelerating and and you can go you can accelerate more than your body could take eventually uh you know where the lactic acid settles in and you start getting tired um so with the with the tandem bike you you really can open up your heart and lungs without fear of running into something so you're back in high school so you're lifting weights uh-huh. you're you're doing your thing and it sounds like that's how you you made your uh, your, 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 your clique of people, whether you were so with the late weightlifting crowd and you, it sounds like you made a lot of friends among your sighted folks and you had a, you had a, you had a crowd to, to, uh, hang, hang out with. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I would say it was, it was, uh, when I was in high school, right. You had the preps yes. the preps, and you had the, uh, the jocks and you had the, uh, the stoners, if you will, yep. the druggies. Yep. And so because I played bass guitar in high school um, and, and my drummer, we were kind of into weightlifting. We, we kind of called ourselves rockers where we had long hair and we, <laughs> and we were kind of jocks, but we weren't really like the, um, uh, you know, the homecoming type, you know, mm-hmm. the, the all American, we, we, we played music, you know, we played rock and roll and uh and yet we were, you know, kind of jocks as well. And we had long hair. So we were kind of in our own little subcategory, I guess. So like, you graduated. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So you graduated from high school and yeah. you went on to college and talk about sort of how this sort of love for weightlifting and, you know, sort of getting out and running about how that carried on through you as you went uh, t- t- through your college years. Yes. Yeah, so great question. So I, um, so going to high school, I would ride my bike to college, um, and I, I had to ride about seven miles to get to the community college, um, and I had to take a lot of um, remedial math courses, for example, because I couldn't see enough during the entrance exam to place high enough to get out of those classes. So it wasn't that I didn't have the mental or intellectual capability. It was just my vision was getting in the way. And once again, I was maybe trying to hide the fact mm-hmm. that I had a vision issue. So, so trying to fit in, I was actually uh, handicapping myself. And um, so by the time I graduated college, I got my Bachelor of Arts degree in Biblical Studies because I had become a Christian about halfway through my college years. And, um, and so I had thought about getting into radio ministry, um, but I lost more eyesight by the time I graduated college. And, um, if I'm going too fast, let me know. No, no, you're doing great. Okay. So I had a job, um, after college where I was, um, putting my face up to the computer monitor. And this is back when they had monochromatic, uh, screens, 
Um, so I was doing basically telephone marketing for the GM MasterCard. <laughs> and um, so after three or four weeks, I went for a bike ride with some pastors in the in the neighborhood of, of Florida where I was living. And they started calling me Moses because my face would glow. So between my chin and my forehead, I had a, a sunburn because of the cathode ray tube. I was putting my face too close to the oh. screen to read the computer screen. And I bet that affected your eyes even more. It, it could have. It, it was making me nauseous. Um, and, and I can see why they don't want pregnant women working too close to the computer monitor. Um, and I wasn't even pregnant at the time. I um, hope not. Right. Never will be. <laughs> That's correct. And, um, and so, so I, I resigned that job. And providentially, I came home kind of just brokenhearted because I, I wanted to make enough money to get on my own, get away from my parents' house, and be my own person. And I got a call from uh, a, a college roommate's uh, classmate. His father was blind, and he called me up, and he said, hey, Ron, have you ever considered becoming a blind person? And at that point, I had been broken enough that I thought it's time to jump off the fence. I've been trying to be a sighted person. I'm losing more vision. I should really just swallow whatever pride I had and learn how to become a blind person. So then I went to the Louisiana Center for the Blind in 1995. And there they blindfolded me for 40 hours a week. And I was there for nine months and they had me doing all kinds of challenge activities to get me out of my comfort zone. And that's where I really started, I guess, becoming myself as a blind person. I tell people that I came out of the closet as a blind person. Do you believe in the blindfolding process? I have mixed feelings about that when they blindfold you in order for you to adjust. I, I do. I kind of like to say it, it, that's too simple. Uh, uh, a process to really try to make a point. It's more complicated than that. But what do you think about that? I, I'm glad. I, I, I like the way this, this interview is going, actually, because it is a big part of my story. Um, now that I'm totally blind in my 50s, I now I kind of look back and if I could only have that nine months of eyesight again, I, I would love to have it back. But at the time when when they put the blindfold on me, it was because I was in denial with my situation. Um, for example, I would try so hard to try to see if there was a black Camaro coming down the street in the shadows of the trees. I was looking so hard that maybe I wasn't paying enough attention to what I could hear. Mm -hmm. You know, the sound of the tires or the sound of the engine coming toward me. And so I think when I went under blindfold, I think it was really the, the main way that I was able to disconnect the, um, the vision part of my computer system in my head from my CPU. Mm -hmm. So being under blindfold, I think it actually helped me to pay attention to the cane or pay attention to what I can hear. Or Ron, I would like to relay a story while on the subject here and this uh -huh. ties in with what you're talking about, just to put everything in perspective. Sure. I was born legally blind, and during a 10-year period in my 20s, I lost my remaining sight. They called it optic atrophy. Well, the point to my story is one day, 
I was on a mobility lesson in my city. And I had a tendency with what remaining sight I had to try to look around the corner for cars. Well, one day I was about to cross a major street and I was looking, you know, it was a force of habit, looking around the corner to see an oncoming car. Well, my mobility instructor said to me, don't use your vision. Just mm -hmm. relax and listen. But I couldn't help it. I always tried to look at things when I could. But he told me that that wasn't a good idea in this situation. I should just listen for the cars, not try to look for them around the corner. Ron, how did your um, uh, newly found Christian faith contribute to all this, uh, you know, sort of adjusting to blindness? I think um, that's another profound question. I appreciate it. Um, I think uh, so here I was a new Christian and um, being in denial about my blindness, I, I think maybe when I first became a Christian, I think maybe maybe I prayed to receive my sight back or maybe other people had prayed that I would get healed. Um, but I think when when that didn't happen, I, I think uh, focusing on God promising to never leave us nor forsake us, um, his mercies are new every morning. I, I think that when I, I think it actually helped me to accept my blindness because I was, I was realizing by now. So I became a Christian when I was 22 and I went to the Louisiana center at the age of 26. And I think I, it maybe helped me to humble myself, realizing that I wasn't getting very far in life. And when the, the night that I lost my job, that I resigned from my job because the, the computer screen was making me nauseous. Um, I think I saw God's timing in this, this older general, this older gentleman uh, who was also a Christian suggesting that I go get blind training. And once I accepted that, I, I think I saw some doors opening that I thought was, was God leading me in that direction. So let's talk about some of those doors. Uh, I, and we haven't talked about your tandem very much. So sure. was, 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 the, <laughs> was the tandem uh, one of those doors? Absolutely. Um, so, so with like going to Louisiana Center, uh, I was getting ready to get a Greyhound and, and just go out there in a, in, a, in a very independent way just to get on a bus and just tough it out. And by golly, I'll get there. But, but a fr the friend of mine stepped up and gave me a ride to Louisiana with my boxes of apartment uh, stuff, you know, cups and plates and stuff. Um, when with the whole tandem situation, I was at an NFB meeting, uh, national convention, and they had a job, um, jobs, job seminar, and they had a blind truck driver there at the, he was speaking. He was one of the main speakers in the job conference. And I thought to myself, okay, this guy is blind. He's not actually driving the truck but he's getting the gigs for the truck, the trucking, the truck that he had his own trucking company. He was going out and getting the gigs, the jobs to, to drive. He was hiring drivers. He, he bought the truck, I guess, with some money that he had inherited and he was taking that investment and he was making money. He was going on the road with his drivers. He was experiencing the life of a trucker even though he wasn't physically shifting gears and turning the steering wheel and hitting the brakes and the accelerator. And that spoke to me a, in a very huge way about the tandem because 
I didn't want to give up my ability to steer or use the gears to, to my advantage. Um, but when I saw him doing that, I realized how absurd it would be if he was actually driving um, the truck being blind. And, and that helped me to, once again, I felt like God, that, that still small voice was kind of saying, Ron, um, you know, why don't you at least give this another chance and the tandem another chance. And, and so that was, no, oh, that was 1997. And I bought my first tandem in 1998. So it took me about a year to get over. I, I had, it was a step of faith for me to buy my first tandem because I was living on a, in a third floor apartment. And how would I get the bike downstairs? Would it fit in the elevator? Could I get it down the steps? Where would I keep it in my apartment? Who would ride with me? Yeah, it was a big, yeah. Uh, I, it was a, it was a step into the unknown and um, to keep the story moving. I ended up finally buying a bike and, and I received it in a box from, from California where I'm living now. Uh, it arrived in Minnesota. I was teaching blind students uh, orientation and mobility at Blind Inc. in Minneapolis. The, the eight foot long box came in the mail, UPS or something. And my student, one of my students and I, we, we, we threw the bike over our shoulders and we walked eight blocks with this tandem on our, this tandem box on my, our shoulders, like it was a canoe or a kayak. Yep. And I built the bike in my, in my apartment. And if I didn't have the pedal turned a certain way, the bike would not fit into the elevator. So I get the bike and I'm riding the front seat of the bike with my remaining vision down to the bike shop to get some, some performance parts. Um, and as I'm leaving, somebody taps me on the shoulder and he says, hi, uh, I was wondering, how do you like this bike? My wife and I want to get one. And I said, sir, nice to meet you. I, I didn't say it that, that cordially, but I said, hi, I said, to be honest, I'm blind. I'm going blind. And I, and I need to be on the back seat. And so I'm looking for somebody to ride it with me. And he gave me his card. And that was my first captain, oh, my wow. first front seater. So then the first time I get together with him for a ride, we go about, I don't know, four blocks. And we stop at a gas station to pump up the tires. And wouldn't you know, a guy pulls up in his car asking me questions about the bike because he has a, a single bike made by the same company. And, and so on my first ride with my first captain, a guy pulls over and he becomes my second captain. So um, if you're familiar with uh, Noah's Ark, uh, God brought animals paired up to get on the Ark. And, and, uh, and that's how I felt like God was was really blessing my step of faith because he was bringing people across my path to go ride with me on this new investment that I made with an expensive tandem. So if I understand your, your bio, you, you ended up doing this stuff uh, competitively. Is that right? Or at least doing long distance stuff or talk about that. Yeah. So, um, so when I met my first captain, my second captain, we would just go out riding together, but then I contacted a bike club and the president, uh, was a, a small female. She came out and rode with me. She had never been on a tandem before. And when, so she took me to one of the rides where the club was riding. So at the club ride, maybe there was 30 people there on single bikes. 
And we started at the back of the group because she wasn't very comfortable. But by the time the, the 30 miles or whatever was finished, you know, an hour, two hours, we were, we were, you know, getting up maybe near the front of the group. So, so we made some impressions and then I started finding other people to ride with me and something I never thought about. They had their own tandems. Some, some people had their own tandems that they didn't have anyone to ride it with Mm -hmm. and they're, they're sighted people. So I would start riding their bikes with them. And it was to the point where I didn't even need my own tandem, but, but long story short, what happened with that, Peter, is that maybe a year into tandem cycling, I became healthy enough and fit enough that I met a guy on one of the club rides who his name was Mike and Mike, he told me he was going to ride across the country next year. And I said, you know, that was always one of my, one of my goals when I was at, the first time I saw Rocky three, you know, the, the Mm -hmm. boxing movies. um, I thought my world championship would be that I can ride my bike across the country and, and so he invited me to go ride with him across the country. So we rode from LA to Boston in 32 days, averaging about 120 miles a day. Um, so that was just for fun. Um, and I took a week off from uh, a month off from work and we, we did that in the year 2000. And then in 2003, after doing more club rides in between, just every, it, it became a part of my lifestyle. Mm-hmm riding five or 7,000 miles a year, just, just for the fun of it after work, come home, change your clothes, get on a bike, go ride with the bike club for 20 or 30 miles before sunset. And, um, so then I, uh, in 2003, I was, uh, 35 years old and I went to the Olympic training center for an introduction to bicycle racing camp for blind people. (laughs) I didn't know they had such a thing. And I met a guy there and he said, Ron, you're a natural um on friday night there's going to be a tryout for the olympic uh team and he said you know he explained to me the time standard that we needed to make and we went out and and our whole camp was applauding us and and it was like a scene out of a movie right where the guy's not sure of himself he's he's on the field uh, he, he looks into the audience and sees a woman that he likes and she's cheering for him and and even though I didn't have those visual things going on, your imagination kind of runs of wild. Yep. Anyway, and so we made the national time standard and, and they had uh, referee, uh, officials there to verify that it was all legit. And I made the U.S. national um, Paralympic cycling team. Paralympics are Olympics basically for people who have a physical disability. I've heard of them. Yeah, not to be confused with Special Olympics, which right. is people who have maybe a phys- uh, 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 a mental challenge or a physical, um, a psychological disability. I'm at a loss for words. Um, but you, you, so Paralympics is some kind of disability, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so people often get Special Olympics mixed up with Paralympics. Ron, but, I want to backtrack just a little bit to your cross-country tandem biking trip. Sure. With the, with the gentleman who invited you for the first time. Yeah. How did he, or how did you, for that matter, map out your route? Okay. So we, um, so when you think about riding across country, you think, well, you have packs and tents and mat- air mattresses, and and you're carrying all of it on your bike. What we did was we signed up for a tour company. So the tour company, we flew out to Los Angeles, 
and we had our luggage, our clothing and everything. And we would throw it on a van that morning and then they would drive our luggage to the next hotel and they would give us the route sheets and they would, they would have like food stops every 15 to 25 miles. So they would buy us breakfast in the morning at the hotel. They would buy us lunch. Well, they would provide lunch on the side of the road. And then we would all buy dinner on our own independently because people would get to the next hotel at varying times. Mm -hmm. So dinner was on us. And so, so it was a pre, a prearranged, um, uh, situation, um, where everything was already mapped out and they had cars on the course in case you had a problem mechanically or so it was physically uh, or mentally or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like a, a flat tire or whatever. And so they had the route planned out and then they had the hotels planned out and, and you pay for it when you sign up for the ride. Um, so you can take an ocean cruise on an ocean liner, or you can pay three or $4,000 to ride across the country with a, a tour company, if you will. So this is In Perspective. You're listening uh, to In Perspective. Uh, I'm Peter Altschul. This is Bob Branco, who's the main host. And we're listening uh, to Ron Versace talking about tandem riding. Um, Diane, are there any folks on the call now? Okay. Yes, we have uh, a raised hand, um, Jane. Ah, all right. Let's, ah, let's our friend Jane. <laughs> Hello to all of you, and especially to to you who bikes um, a lot. Ron. So I should thank you for, I could not remember at the moment. It's okay. I love biking. I biked all my life. I am totally blind. Uh-huh. I don't bike now. Uh, we've just made a major move and I don't have contacts to him in my mid seventies, but biking is such a great way to, to hustle down the road. I just wanted to say, I'm glad to be listening to you tell your story. Is it written? Do you have a book accounting for your biking stuff? I, I don't. Um, I, I read, I regret not writing up even an article for the Braille Monitor uh, back when Barbara Cheadle was the editor of the Braille Monitor. She had wanted me to write up my experience, uh, mm-hmm. and I just never have. And then Barbara passed away. So, um, well, but, do yeah. it in her honor. Put a foot to the pedal for her. Or well something. said. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I thank would you. publish your article, Ron, in Consumer Vision, which is my publication. I, I would gladly publish an article for you. I certainly would read it. Um, thank you. So uh, thank you, Diane. Are there any other hands raised? No, sir. Okay. Uh, that, that's great. So I want to go back, uh, if you don't mind, Ron, to uh-huh. um, uh, talk. So, so, you, you, so you get qualified for the Paralympic team. Right. What happened next? So... Uh, it was a lot of fun because Chris was my Olympic captain. He had gone to nationals a number of times and we bonded, you know, when you go to camp or any kind of camp, you usually stay up late talking. And, Mm -hmm. and he and I really talked a lot about, uh, you know, masculinity and, and what it, uh, manhood and, and what, what kind of challenges are before us as mainly me as a man. And, and I'm not trying to be sexist or anything like that. I'm just speaking from a man's perspective. And, 
And, but we would stay up late and talking about philosophy and, and he read this book called, um, wild at heart and it deals with a lot of men's issues. And so we hit it off. And so, so bottom line is we, we went to our, our homes. He was in Washington state and I was in Minnesota at the time. And we got together. Um, we had a chance to go do a, a world championship race in Quebec. Um, then the, 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 a team crashed at the, at the, um, I don't know if it was a world championship the year before, um, and they need, so we were on the B, we made the B team. We didn't make the, the a team. Uh, we were both older. I think he was 40 and I was 35. So we ended up going to, um, the international blind sports association world championship in Quebec. And the United States Cycling Federation paid for half of our expenses because we're on the B team. If you're on the A team, you got a full a full ride. But so we raced on the track, um, like you think of a an oval track that you run on, except for take the curves and you bank them about forty five degrees, and so you're you're riding like in a bathtub. You know how a bathtub you go around and you're your curves are banked and we got a silver medal, Chris and I for the United States. And, um, and then we did a road race and I think we came on maybe 13th out of maybe 40 riders. Um, but then we did what they call a time trial. A time trial is where you race the course individually, where you can't draft another bike. Mm-hmm. Drafting is is real important uh, in road racing because you can really use it as a strategy. But a time trial is you start racing at one oh one, and then the next bike behind you can't leave the starting line until one oh three. So you're two minutes apart, so that you can't draft each other. Anyway, and so we got an eighth place out of about twenty five riders, and it was our first international race. And it was in the rain, and uh, it was it was it was scary and exciting at the same time. Um, so, but but that was my first real. Again, here here we go. As a blind person, I missed out on a lot of competitive um, opportunities in high school because I couldn't play volleyball in in PE class, or I couldn't play softball, or. You know, so I was missing out on a lot of aspects. To did you ever think of playing beatball? I played beatball for a couple games, um, maybe back in 92. I had some fun doing that. Um, but I think my, my, my heart was really more into the aerobics of, of running, swimming, or cycling, I think. And, uh, but I, I had some good times with beatball, for sure, beat baseball. So I'm curious about this drafting concept. Uh, wow. I mean, I sort of know what drafting is, but could you sort of explain what drafting is and then talk about the strategy involved with all of this? How, how, how does strategy of drafting connect with racing? Okay, a- excellent question. So, so when you ride a bike, um, if you want to go faster and faster, you need more and more energy because um, the, the, as you go through the air, the air is actually slowing you down. So uh, like when you swim, you got to go through the water and the water creates resistance so on the bicycle, the faster you go, because of the wind, 
that you're riding through, it creates more resistance. So if I get behind another bicycle, um, let's just say two single bikes. Um, when you get behind another bike, you can save about a third of your energy. If you have the front person break the wind in front of you. And so behind the rider, there's a little bit of air that's still behind the, the rider. And if you can get your front wheel into that still air, that's where you save a lot of your energy. And so with racing, um, when you get into a pack of riders, if, if you get into a, a large pack of 20 or 30 bicycles, the draft becomes so strong that as this group is moving all this air from the front of the pack, it actually creates a vacuum behind the pack where that, that back pressure will actually help push you down the road. So in, in bicycle racing and car racing, the draft is the faster you go, the more the draft is real uh, important to your performance. And so you can use it as a strategy where you hide yourself in the draft for maybe much of the race. And then toward the end, when you're fresh and everybody else is tired from pushing all the wind for you, you can be more fresh and you can come around the whole pack and actually win the race in the last 200 yards. <laughs> um, but when you do a time trial, there's no drafting allowed and, and you have to wear a helmet that's pointy and you have to wear a skin suit where your, your, your Jersey is sewn into one piece with your shorts and you have um, like shoe covers on your shoes to make your feet more smooth when you go through the air. And, and of course, cycling, we shave our legs. And uh, so it's, it's a whole little art and you're doing all these things to maybe try to save 40 seconds after 25 miles. <laughs> it's pretty funny, actually. I, I, but, I would, I would imagine that uh, people are sort of wise to this drafting concept. So they don't want to, you know, to, to give anybody advantages if they can yes. help it. Right. So there must be a whole lot of jockeying and I don't want to say bumping bikes, but there must be so, so people saying, no, you're not going to draft behind me. That ain't going to happen. Right. <laughs> so there, there must be some, a lot of that, that kind of stuff going on in these races. Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, um, in, in a long race, you, you might have um, people go into the front and they pull for maybe two minutes and then they drop off. And then the next rider comes up and he pulls for two minutes. And then he and then he so the whole the whole pack, if you will, is generally rotating. Um, so everybody's kind of working together as a team. And um but you that so that makes your strategy a little tougher, um, but but it's all part of racing and it's so a lot of times too you might not be the strongest rider, but you might if you can if you can suffer and, and take pain more than somebody else when it comes down to the last half mile of the race you can actually pull it off and win a race if you can just tough it out and suffer and and being a blind person who was really striving to try to be independent and work my way off of social security and get my own apartment and eventually, you know, hopefully find a wife. And, and you know, I had cats for years, but um, so anyway, so it's, it's the ability to suffer is part of bicycle racing as well. <laughs> but I would also be, uh, you know, I, I know nothing about bike racing, but I would imagine there are some 
tension between cooperation and competition, right? I mean, it sounds like you're sort of like a, a, a the analogy came to mind as a flock of geese, right? Where there's a point yes. person, a point, a point geese, if you will, or point goose. Yep. And then and then the goose goes back. It's the same basic principle, it sounds like to yes. me, based on what you Absolutely. described. But at some point that breaks down. Yes. Right? <laughs> and so how does that, I mean, I, it's probably hard to answer, but how does that happen? How does this sort of cooperation fall, you know, sort of morph to, to competition? Yeah, that's, um, it's, it's an interesting dynamic where, where you have, especially like I'm, I'm thinking about the Tour de France where you have about 200 riders and you're riding about 150 miles a day on, you know, many days, day in and day out. So the Tour de France will go for about three and a half weeks in France. And, um, so you'll actually have teams helping each other out. If, if like Lance Armstrong was the star rider 20 years ago, so he would actually ride with other teams to conserve his team maybe for the next day's race. And so, so there is a lot of give and take, like you're saying, um, teams helping each other, riders helping each other. Um, but then it does come down to why are you there and, and how can you use your strategy to a lot of times if you win a bike race, you might be winning by maybe an inch in mm -hmm. front of the previous guy. Um, there's a way to thrust your hips where you're kind of throwing the bike across the finish line, um, uh, split seconds behind uh, ahead of somebody else. And so, um, but like in car racing, if you're out at the front, you're using more fuel, you're, you might be wearing your tires out quicker than a, so there is a lot of strategy in any kind of uh, competition, I guess. What is the length of the race? So when I was racing, um, I would, okay, uh, I guess I'll work my way back. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So on the track, the races might only be 1,000 meters. Really? Which is, um, so it, it's more or less a sprint, like four times around the track. Um, when you get into road racing, you're, 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 when I was talking about doing a time trial, the time trial, the, the world championship time trial I did was about, maybe it was 20 kilometers. So maybe that was about 14 miles. And, um, but when you do a state, a state time trial, like if I did a state championship for Texas, I, I, I have six Texas state championships. Usually your state championship time trials are about 40 kilometers or about 25 miles. And my fastest state championship, we did 25 miles in about 57 minutes flat. So it it's it's doesn't sound that fast if you're thinking about being in a car, but to be going 25 miles an hour on a bicycle for an hour, <laughs> it takes a lot of effort. I'm sure it does. Uh, I just want to interrupt the program for a moment to ask Diane if there are any more people ready to raise their hands or to participate? Uh, no, there are no raised hands. All right. Thank you, Diane. Yeah. So, so go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to ask you. So uh, you, you said, I heard you right, 25 miles an hour. Um, what, what, so you, you, give me your time again, your fastest time. So, so some of my fastest races that I remember were right. um, the 25 so 40 kilometers is maybe, let's say, 24.5 or 24.7 miles. Right. And my fastest state championship was about 57 minutes. 
And, and, and what, what's the world record? Do you have, uh, what, what, you know, do you have a sense what the world record is? Obviously, you're not a world record person. Oh, that's a good question, but, though. Um, so they they do this thing called the hour record. Um, they'll usually go to a track that's at altitude because if you go the higher, the more altitude, the air gets thinner, so you can go faster because you have less resistance. Sure. Um, I think in an hour, I think they're doing somewhere around 36 miles in in an hour got it got it but 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 my question about that rocky mountains i went to the ask music festival for a couple of years and one of the things that that happens uh is that uh vocalists you know they get they get up there and they have to we all had to audition i wasn't a vocalist but had to audition anyway and you none of us could breathe you know we've been we've been there for for so uh, it, it takes some acclimation to be able to, to get to those speeds, I would imagine. Yeah. And that's what they would do is they'd maybe get there a month ahead of time and, and become acclimated. And uh, um, so uh, when, when I was racing, one of the common things to do before an event is you go stay at altitude for weeks at a time so that when you go back down to sea level, your red blood cells are more efficient at using now you have more oxygen when you're at a lower sea level right a, a lower altitude there's more oxygen and so that could become a competitive advantage so no, I understand. so i'm curious so you, you 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 found your niche if you will what or one of your niches you know you're you're doing this uh, paralympic stuff um uh-huh. how did that impact the rest of your life I, that's okay. So, um, in 2003, I was between jobs. I went from working at blind Inc to working for the Texas commission for the blind in Austin. And after going to a world championship and having to walk up a wooden track with, um, bicycle shoes that had no rubber on the bottom. So it was real slippery. Um, and you're, you're walking up to your bike at the start line, uh, and you're walking uphill with slippery shoes and you're, you're trying to keep your composure to get on your bike and you're, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's a stressful situation. And then you're, you're being asked to compete. And I got interviewed from my job in Texas, um, a few months after going to a world championship race and the stress of an interview I, I would almost have to say, for lack of a better word, is about nothing compared to racing the stress that you're under when you're racing bicycles at a world championship. And uh, there's people there from all over the world and and all their BO smells different because of different diets. And and you're being asked to compete as uh, America in the United States. Cycling is not as as popular as it is in, in other European countries, for example, your two biggest sports in, in the U S are baseball and football in Europe and, and other countries, your two biggest sports uh, popularity wise are soccer, which they call football, football. it's soccer yeah. and cycling. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I, I think it gave me an edge. Um, like for example, at a job interview, uh, I think I became, you know, as a blind person, you're always trying to boost your confidence in yourself and the the competitive aspect of cycling i think has helped me to 
like when I'm out with my wife, <laughs> I can be a bulldog at times. I can be uh, more than assertive sometimes. And maybe some of that comes from cycling because I've learned to suffer. And, and then you mix that with trying to be independent as a blind person. And it can be, I can be hard to live with at times. <laughs> so, so, uh, so clearly it, it sounds like your experience with Paralympic competition really sort of helped you gain a bunch of skills and branch out your life. Uh, uh, and, and it sounds like, it, how did you meet your wife? I, I met her at church. Um, so I'm 50, I'll be 54 in next month. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's news to me actually, now that I'm saying it to you, (laughs) um, and I didn't get married until 54 next month is news to you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause you don't think about it. No, yeah, it's true. (laughs) You often know. And so, uh, so yeah, I met her at church and I, she had told me when I asked her out, we went to a service together. Oh, I met her there and she sat with me and, and I got to tell you this little story. This church had, um, it was a, it was a mixed culture church, a multicultural church. And so the band was more of a funk band. And I had traditionally gone to churches that were much more, um, subdued in their worship, if you will. Like if you said amen or clapped your hands, like that's pushing the mm-hmm. amount the, of expression. The, 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 the envelope. Yes. Yeah. I got yes. it. Yeah. And so the church that, that I was going to, they had a bass player and a drummer and it was like a Christian funk band. And from going to the more traditional churches wearing a, a, a tie and a shirt and maybe slacks and stuff. Uh, you know, my, the college I went to was pretty traditional, if you will. And I said to God, I said, Lord, I'm going to sit in the back row at this church. And if I like the worship music, I'm just going to bug out. I'm just going to dance and just have fun. Like David, David danced before the Lord. And so, so my wife, Judy, she comes up and sits next to me and, and she had, I had met her, I guess, through another friend. Uh, maybe a few weeks earlier and she goes, Oh, I, um, the service is going to start. Let me go get my Bible and stuff and I'll sit with you. So she gets up to go get her stuff, her purse and Bible. And I said, all right, all right, Lord, I guess I'm not going to be bugging out with you tonight. <laughs> Cause I wouldn't <laughs> want And so it was just funny, but yeah, so I met her at church and, um, after the service, she, I asked her out to go say, let's go grab some coffee. And one of the, things that she said to me is she said that a lot of guys would not ask her out. And one of the things that impressed her about me is that I had enough confidence to just ask her out and not be, uh, you know, so she, she saw that I had some guts and I think she cited, I take it. Yeah. Yeah. She cited. And, and I waited until I was 50 to get married. So I was, I was open to a blind woman. I've dated some blind women, but if you think that maybe one person out of a thousand is blind, um, you know, you're, there's not as many blind women to choose from, but, but I ended up with the sighted woman. So, so um, we have two minutes. We have two minutes. I just want to ask Diane one more time while we have time. Are there any other potential participants ready to ask Ron Bersese question? There are no raised hands. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Diane. Peter. So thank you, uh, Diane. So Ron, uh, in the last short time we have, uh, uh-huh. you know, talk about the rest of your life. Well, you know, so you got married. You, I know you moved to California. Talk about what you're doing and how how you're 
integrate in tandem bike biking into your current life? Yeah. So okay. Um, so I've I've been riding with bike clubs ever since my racing days, um, and and that's that's maybe something I wanted to talk about is is anybody here tonight hearing this interview? Um, you don't need your own tandem. You can. Um, there there's two websites I'd like to tell people about. Number one is bicyclingblind.org. And you can go onto the website. It's free. You can set up a little profile and you can actually find people using your zip code who might be in your area who might have their own tandem and they can actually get to know you anonymously over the web. And if you feel comfortable, you can meet up with them and go for a bike ride on, on their tandem. And um, another website is blindstokersclub.org. Stoker is the backseat per rider on a tandem is a stoker. Yeah. And so if you contact the Blind Stokers Club and you, you, you give them uh, your information and set up a profile, they, they might be able to find somebody to come out and ride with you as a blind person. So you don't need the expense of your own tandem. You don't need to find a place to put it. Um, and to Jane, um, Jane, I, you're you have about 70. 10 seconds. Okay. And so, so cycling is something that you can do well into your eighties or nineties because it's a low impact sport. And so even Jane has a, a, has a chance to ride still with people. And, and it's good exercise as well. Ron, exactly. regrettably, our time is up for this edition of In Perspective. You've been very, very good telling great stories and inspiring a lot of people about what you do with your tandem bike and other aspects of life. You are a very confident young man. And I commend you for all that you've done as a blind person. Many other blind people. Uh, do what you do, but others, I think, need to hear your example, and I think you've provided that very well. Thank you for being on In Perspective, uh, and I do want to mention briefly, next week we're going to be having Joel Schneider, audio description and performing arts will be two of his many topics that he'll be talking about next week. Peter, thank you very much as always. Diane, thank you for a wonderful job filling in for Raymond today. Much appreciated. Go safe with God's abundant blessings, everyone, and have a blessed week.